Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20, Exodus chapter 20. These guys are making their way to the front, and then they're going to go to the back. And as they do, if you need a Bible, get their attention. And you can own that Bible. We want that to be our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. So please get their attention. They'll get you one of those Bibles marked for you at Exodus chapter 20. As we continue our series on the Ten Commandments, today we come to the sixth of the ten. It's in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 20. You shall not murder. Now, it's been said that commandments 5, 6, and 7 deal, all of them, with human life. Commandment 5 that we saw last week in verse 12, honor your father and mother, deals with the sanctity of the home, the place where human life is first nurtured. The sixth commandment that we'll consider today in verse 13 guards the sanctity of human life itself. You shall not murder. And the seventh command in verse 14 that we'll consider next week, you shall not commit adultery, guards the sanctity of marriage and the institution through which the origin of human life is to take place. As we consider the command against murder and its implications, I should probably warn you that I'm sure I'm going to say some things that will upset any number of you today as we extract the application of this command. But as always, I'll try to base my assertions on the precepts precepts and principles of God's word. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we're here now with your word before us, your ancient word but your word that is just as relevant today as it was the moment it was given. And so we ask you then to help us as we with thankful hearts look at your instructions to us designed to guide us, yea, to guide society, to guide the world in the way it should behave before you. We ask you, Lord, to help us to make application of what you say here so that we as Christians can can shine as lights in darkness to show the way For those who have not yet met you, and as we sung earlier, have lost the way. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now we have each week inserted for you in the program an outline so that you can follow along with the message. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And we say, first of all, in that outline, Thou shalt not murder teaches us a few things. The first of which is human life must be valued. Now, that God places extremely high value on human life is evident throughout Holy Scripture. It extended not only to what we call first-degree murder, but also to carelessness. Notice what Deuteronomy 22 says. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. The idea there is that when you build a house, you're to make it with safety features. And they had flat roofs in those days, which were used often in the evening for entertainment. Folks would go there and gather and saying, build a guardrail around that so that no one falls and uh, in the worst case dies. And as a result, you, the owner of the house, will be guilty of bloodshed. God's concern for human life extended even to failing to oversee your animals to keep them from harming others. The next chapter in Exodus chapter 21 says this. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, and that bull has had the habit of goring, and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up, its owner also 
is to be put to death. So God is very serious about human life. Human life is to be valued. But why should human life be accorded such care? Well, I give a few reasons in the outline. First is this. Human life has been given a glorious purpose. The Apostle John, in the very last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, was given a glimpse of worship in heaven at the end of human history. And he says there that he saw the throne of God and various creatures worshiping God and then says this, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now that's at the end of human history. That's what's going on. But the reason that's what's going on at the end is because that's the purpose God gave at the beginning. God made us to bring glory to himself. It's the purpose that God has given to humanity to reflect him back to him. Or to put it another way, to bring glory to him. As we're going to see, he made us in his image in order to do that. And he gave us the capacity to perform this highest purpose. Genesis chapter 2 tells us the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Humanity has been given the purpose of bringing glory to God, of reflecting his character back to him. And God gave us the capacity to do so in creation by making us spiritual creatures who have a likeness to himself. We, as finite, limited creatures, hear this, we replicate the infinite God. We, on a finite, limited level, resemble and have a likeness to God Almighty. So human life must be valued because it has this glorious purpose. But I say as well, human life is unique. The famous or infamous Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said this, I see no reason to attribute to man any significance beyond that of a baboon or a grain of sand. Well, that's a far cry from what the Bible says about humanity. Human beings are the crowning achievement of all of God's creatures, and humanity is to be distinguished from all of them as on a higher order that no mere animal can attain. The false notion of evolution as the explanation of our origin notwithstanding. And a few years ago at our sportsman's dinner, in my brief gospel challenge, I used this truth of the difference between humans and animals, and I appealed to the men's inherent knowledge of that difference. There we were at a dinner consuming meat that had been hunted and killed. And so I reminded them, we all think it's okay to kill animals, but none of us thinks it's okay to treat humans in the same way. And it's because we all know there's a profound difference. Now, that being the case, with this profound difference between humans and animals, I warned you at the beginning, I may make some of you mad, this is one of those places. My antipathy toward pets has become well-known in our congregation so as to become a kind of light, light-hearted joke among us. Now, that's mostly just a personal preference. I'm just not a fan of furry things jumping on me and other things they do, but that's just me. But there is a larger issue than just personal preference regarding our view and treatment of animals. Too many people treat animals as if they were people. 
as evidenced by the lavish expense and doting that's accorded them. We even refer to animals with personal pronouns and sometimes even inanimate objects as such, but actually, none of those are persons. It's simply a convention. The Bible is clear that animals and humans are qualitatively different and they should be treated as such. In fact, the Bible teaches that animals are made for the benefit of humanity as we fulfill what's called the dominion mandate that God gave to us in the book of Genesis to fill and subdue the earth. I see no reason to accord animals anything more than that. Animals are our servants. They're to be part of our food, for example, our diet. Genesis chapter 9, the fear and dread of you, humanity, will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hand. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. And even our Lord Jesus ate the Passover lamb that had been killed for food. He caught fish, apparently, and killed them and roasted them and gave them to his disciples, as well as consuming consuming that for himself. So animals may be used for clothing, as well as any other worthwhile, useful purpose to benefit humanity as we carry out that dominion mandate that God gave us, including for experimentation for medical and scientific purposes. That benefits humanity. The truth is, God's creation was designed to be anthropocentric, that is, man-centered, and the rest of creation is to be subservient to humanity to enable him to glorify his God and fulfill the dominion mandate to be God's vice-regent of the whole earth and animals fit into that subservience to humanity. After all, as you go further in reading in your Bible, beyond past Exodus 20, where we're given the Ten Commandments, as you read further, you soon learn that millions of animals were sacrificed on the altar. Now, none of that gives anyone a license for cruelty. In fact, Proverbs 12 says this, the righteous care for the needs of their animals. So if you have an animal, take care of it. Take care of it well. But let's be careful that while treating animals well, we never forget that they're not people. They do not have souls. They are for humanity and really, contrary to the animal rights movement, they really have no rights per se. Theologian Norman Geisler, in an article some years ago, responding to the radical animal rights movement, which insists we cannot eat meat from animals, said this. He said, I will stop eating animals when they stop eating each other. So maybe when they begin to recognize their own rights, we'll recognize their rights as well. The truth is they're to be used for the glory of God and for the benefit of humanity. The late Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould once stated that, quote, biology has shifted our status, status of humanity, from the image of God to a naked, upright ape. Something called the Great Apes Project, founded by Peter Singer, the father of the modern animal rights movement, is lobbying the United Nations to include a wide range of simians in what he calls the, quote, community of equals with humans and extending the right to life and the protection of individual liberty to those animals. The surge in animal rights is not limited uh, to 
other countries where it has gone crazy. But as I said, we've got that going on at Harvard and at Princeton. In 1999, Harvard began offering its first course in animal rights. The aforementioned Peter Singer of Princeton has said this quote, It can no longer be maintained by anyone but a religious fanatic that man is the special darling of the universe or that animals were created to provide us with food or that we have divine authority over them and divine permission to kill them. Nobody but a religious fanatic could say that. Well, you're seeing one in the flesh right here who says that because God says that. And I say in your outline, human life is unique in that human life is made in God's image. The first chapter of your Bible, on day six of creation, the crowning achievement of God's creative activity. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Your New Testament, even after, that's Genesis chapter 1. But please understand that even after the fall of humanity into sin in Genesis chapter 3, the image of God is still maintained. It is marred, but it is not obliterated. And that's why you have passages like James chapter 3 in your New Testament. James chapter 3 is speaking about the damage that can be done by the sinful use of our tongues. And it says this, With our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. The image of God is present in humanity and in humanity alone. God gave it at creation and it's passed on to successive generations by procreation. At creation, the first man and woman were imbued with the image of God. But then it's passed on to us and to our children by procreation. We see that in Genesis chapter 5. God created mankind in the likeness of God. But then Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. So Adam had, was given by God, God's image, but then Adam passed on that image to his progeny, and so it goes. Human life is unique in that it's made in the image of God, and I say in your outline, it is made with divine design. Psalm 139, David says to the Lord, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, friends, it's only humanity amongst God's creatures that has the capacity for self-reflection. Just kind of sit back and think about, you know, who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Animals act on instinct. They were made in a particular way to act on instinct and certain stimuli. But man can sit back and think. And think and be self-reflective. One has said this. It's only humanity that can say I am. I think. I will. I ought. And related to this notion that we are made by divine design. Is another implication and application. That we should remember friends that we get our dignity from God. Not from what people think about us. We're made in the image of God. God declares to us, about us, who we are, and how he has made us. And so we get our dignity from God. The implications of that are far-reaching if we're willing to think them through. For instance, 
If our young people, or frankly, we older people, would understand that our dignity and worth come from God, it would cure us of succumbing to things like peer pressure and people-pleasing. Human life must be valued. But I say in your outline, human life must not be taken lightly. It must be valued and not taken lightly. It must not be taken lightly for a couple of reasons. Or in a couple of ways, I should say. Human life must not be taken in action. We must not engage in any act that lightly takes a human life. There are a number of actions to which this applies. First and foremost, obviously, human life must not be taken in murder. So what do we mean by murder? Well, one has defined it this way, the willful, intentional taking of human life on the lone responsibility of the human will. Another said that murder is the violent and unauthorized taking of life. Including, included in this would be vigilante killing, lynching, lone ranger justice, and the like. Suicide is prohibited by this command. Because it is, after all, self-murder. The Bible records five suicides. And at least four are very clearly in a context of notoriously ungodly people. Even the philosopher Aristotle, who was a pagan, said this. To die in order to avoid the pains of poverty or anything that is disagreeable is not part of a brave man, but of a coward. For it is cowardice to shun the trials and crosses of life, not undergoing death because it is honorable, but to avoid evil. That is to say, to avoid unpleasantness or calamity. Now, some of you may have had the experience of losing a loved one to suicide. While it is self-murder, the good news is the gospel, unlike works religion, says that sin, that particular sin, like all others, is atoned in the blood of Jesus. So a believer who commits suicide is with the Lord. And so I want to comfort you with with that thought. Roman Catholicism, for example, a works-oriented religion, says that one who commits suicide has no hope. And that's because, of course, they can do no work to atone for the last act they committed in this life. But the gospel is quite different. And I think the same thing then goes then not only for suicide but for assisted suicide. We here in Southeast Michigan had the dubious distinction a few years ago of being the home to the infamous, now late, Dr. Death, Jack Kevorkian. Kevorkian was trying to popularize here what had been taking place in other countries for several years before. And to adopt what he was pushing with assisted suicide is a slippery moral slope indeed. Back in 1991, so-called mercy killing was technically illegal in the Netherlands. But for almost two decades before, Dutch doctors had been allowed to kill patients on the understanding that the cases will be reported to a district prosecutor who will permit the doctors to plead mitigating circumstances. And so euthanasia, assisted suicide, was positioned as a socially approved crime that requires some sort of vague pro forma public airing. But one author who wrote on it showed that this airing was usually non-existent. Most killings went unreported and uninvestigated. Now, how have things gone in the decades since the Netherlands blazed this new trail in a brave new world for us? 
Well, just within the last two weeks, there was an article in the Washington Post with this title. Children are now being euthanized in Belgium. So, friends, thou, you shall not murder. And that means direct murder. That means self-murder. That means assisting in self-murder. A third form of murder that's prohibited by this command is abortion and infanticide. Now, we may, thankfully, be on the verge of seeing the infamous 1973 Roe v. Wade decision overturned in the next few years. There's a lot of speculation about that. No one, of course, knows for sure. But there's a new justice that is likely to be added to the Supreme Court by its term that starts this October. And there will be a pro-life, then, majority of the nine justices on, on the court. But that decision from 1973 was wrongly decided. It was based on something called the right to privacy. If you've ever read your Constitution, I encourage you to do that. It won't take you long. Read your Constitution and look for the word privacy or just, you know, Google it. Google the Constitution, get a copy of it up, and then do a find search on the word privacy. So, but the Supreme Court in 1965 in a decision called Griswold v. Connecticut said that there is this right to privacy. And then the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that gave a constitutional right to abortion was based on the so-called right to privacy. Now, where did they get the right to privacy if it's not in the Constitution? That Griswold decision said this, and I'm not making this up. The right to privacy is based on, quote, penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. You're thinking to yourself, I don't know what that means. You're in good company. If you look up the word penumbras, it means shadows. An emanation means to be derived from. And so the right to privacy is given in shadows that are derived from the First Amendment. That's what your Supreme Court said. And the Roe v. Wade decision was based on that shaky foundation, hopefully to be overturned soon. The Bible condemns abortion. Exodus 21, if people are fighting and they hit a pregnant woman and there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life. Notice, if the the baby is injured, if the baby dies, you're to take life for life. If the baby is injured in some other way, then you're to have a commensurate punishment to go with that. Psalm 51, where David is is seeking forgiveness for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He cries out to the Lord, and he says in verse 5 of Psalm 51, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time, notice, my mother conceived me. And so at conception, a child, a human being is formed that has a human nature, a human sinful human nature. Now, here's another place where I may make some of you, though, mad at me. We're pro-life. The Bible's pro-life. God's pro-life. You're to be pro-life. But if we're going to be pro-life, it means being pro-friends all of life. And that includes how people are treated after they are born as well. You see, when we say we're pro-life, we focus on abortion. We focus on Roe v. Wade. That's all good and right. But if we're going to be truly pro-life, we should be pro-all of life and be concerned about how people are treated after they are born. 
and therefore think about policies and advocate for and support policies that foster human flourishing and the well-being of every person, no matter their race or country of origin. A disdain among Christians for other human beings and not caring about their plight has no place biblically. This means that we're to have compassion, friends, for those who live in places where conditions are unlivable. Now, there's a huge debate about immigration. Whatever, you, whatever we do and whatever we advocate for with regard to our policies on that or anything else, friends, first, it's got to be in keeping with the character of God and what the Bible teaches. Some people, you know, just say stupid stuff on the other side that just says, you know, we don't need any laws or any of that. That's just dumb. Just to put a fine point on it. You've got to have laws. You've got to have order with regard to anything, including immigration. Just the other night, I saw one cable news commentator interviewing someone and asked that person the question, are all illegal immigrants criminals? Well, the answer to that is yes, by definition. If you did something illegal, you're a criminal. Are all illegal So it's a dumb question, okay? If you're illegal, you've already broken the law. So in fact, indeed, we need sensible laws for immigration. But as Christians, hear this, friends, we need compassionate hearts toward immigrants. And we don't say things like, just go back where you came from without regard to what they're going back to or not caring about the plight of human beings made in the image of God. Human life must not be taken in action. And, I say in your outline, it must not be taken in attitude. That means hatred and anger come under this prohibition. And we're going to see what Jesus said about that in the famous Sermon on the Mount in just a moment. But it actually goes back even to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Where in Leviticus 19, the Bible says, do not hate in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So even in the first part of your Bible, where many people have this false notion that there was kind of a different and more angry God, the same God, the one true and living God, who's the same in the Old and the New Testaments, said in the first part of your Bible, you're not to have hatred in your heart. And then Jesus comes, and in his Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 5. He says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then 1 John chapter 3 says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So what's it mean? You shall not murder. And the Bible then says, there's the action, but there's also the attitude, the attitude of the heart. Hatred is equated in the mind of God with the act. And here's what the Bible's telling us, that if the time and the place were just right, this hatred that we have would soon yield to murder itself. The act would follow inevitably. And the same is true with what our Lord talked about regarding adultery, which is the next command we'll consider next week. 
He said, if you look on a woman and you lust in your heart, it's the same thing. And the point is, if you could, if the time and the place were just right and you could get away with it, the act would take place. And so the intention to kill is murder, according to God. So human life must be valued. It must not be taken lightly. It must not be taken lightly in action or in attitude. And I say, human life must be legally protected. Human life must be legally protected. Now, the permission to take the lives of animals shows that this command, you shall not murder, is not, as it's sometimes translated, you shall not kill. It's you shall not murder, not you shall not kill. There's a difference between killing and murder. The Bible sanctions killing in some circumstances, but never murder. God allows the killing of animals. That's not murder. So we should be precise with it. The command is you shall not murder, not you shall not kill. And God allows taking a human life as well. In certain circumstances. Let me give you a few. Self-defense may require the taking of a life and that's permitted in scripture. Exodus 22. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. You're able to defend yourself against one intruding into your home and threatening imminent harm. That's the Old Testament again. And I hope you have lost the erroneous idea that God is different between the Testaments. That should be enough. But even in the New Testament, Jesus said this to his disciples as he sent them out on a journey. As he sent them out, he told them some of the things to take with them on this journey. journey, And then he said this, if you don't have a sword, buy one. Now, what was that for? For self-defense. Those guys weren't going to be filing their nails with with their swords. So to own a weapon to protect oneself and your family is authorized in Scripture. Clearly. But having said that, here's one final thing that may upset some. I know many of you own guns. And as we've seen, the Bible allows for that for self-defense. Having said that, I just have to tell you, I don't personally own a gun, though I may at some point for the purpose of self-defense. But I confess, friends, that the fascination with stockpiling guns and having bigger and more powerful weapons is lost on me. Now, I'm not a hunter simply because I didn't have a father who taught me to hunt. If I were a hunter, then I suppose I would have a hunting rifle and or a bow, and then I think I'd leave it at that. I'd ask you to consider whether firearms that are designed to do only one thing as far as I know, namely to kill, are in, and a fascination with that is in keeping with the sanctity of life. For me, I can only see guns as a necessary evil. And to celebrate and obsess over items designed to take life seems to be inconsistent with the Bible's high view of that life. Now, I'm going to leave it at that. Because I don't want to get shot. But also because, as I've said, it is true that we are 
allowed to own a weapon. And the Bible doesn't say explicitly how many or how powerful they can be. So this is a wisdom matter rather than an explicitly biblical one. Related to the right to kill in self-defense is the right to engage in war. God commanded wars in the first part of your Bible, and the New Testament does not condemn it. Now, I grant the New Testament doesn't have much to say about it, but you have incidents like John the Baptist instructing soldiers on their responsibilities. These are soldiers who apparently had responded to John the Baptist's message, and they actually asked, what what are we to do? And he says to them, Some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. But notice he does not say, get out of the army and into a decent profession. So the prohibition against murder is not a prohibition against all killing. Killing in self-defense or in war are permitted biblically. And then here's a third type of killing that's not murder, that's permitted according to the Bible. And that is capital punishment. Now, it surprises some that the Bible sanctions capital punishment because many erroneously think that it's a contradiction of a pro-life position. Chris Cuomo of CNN, just a few days ago, had about a three-minute commentary in which he said this, If you believe you don't mess with life in one area, you don't mess with it in another area, period. It's logical. Many who call themselves pro-life are also pro-death penalty, and that's always struck me as odd. For believers, either, these are his words, either the big man calls the shots or we do. Which is it? Well, that's right. I'll refer to him as God rather than the big man. God calls the shots, but let's see what shots God calls from his word in just a moment. But the Pope decreed just 10 days ago, declaring that the death penalty is wrong in all cases and saying that executions are unacceptable in all cases, because they are, quote, an attack on human dignity. What does the Bible say about that? Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? Because, for, in the image of God, has God made mankind. You see, God is saying there that it's actually a pro-life position to take the life of someone who obliterates the image of God. It's because human life is sacred. It's because human life is made in the image of God that the ultimate penalty is to be meted out, says God. It's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Romans chapter 13. Speaking of the government, Paul writes, The one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. You know what they did with the sword. One commentator said, I think rightly, regarding how the death penalty is actually pro-life. The Bible says it, so that settles it for us. But this commentator said that the death penalty, he supports the death penalty properly carried out because, quote, it's the only penalty that truly reflects the enormous value of innocent life. There are times when it's the only punishment that truly fits the crime. And then he points out that contrary to assertions that to be pro-life, you can't believe in capital punishment, it's really the opposite. 
He says, it's interesting to me that as the modern West has grown increasingly post-Christian, it has increasingly signaled a desire to move beyond the death penalty. Even as it grows opposed to capital punishment, ours is a culture that protects a very different right to kill, the right to kill an innocent child in the womb. This represents the deepest possible perversion of justice. The law protects the right to kill the innocent while prohibiting the imposition of true justice on the guilty. We should not permit, he says, the inevitable imperfection of human justice to serve as a pretext for prohibiting capital punishment. What he's saying there is the fact that humans are fallible and the fact that they can get it, get it wrong, that still should not be used as a pretext for prohibiting capital punishment. After all, God knows the full extent of human frailty and he didn't just permit capital punishment, he mandated it from the dawn of recorded history. So friends, let us get our ideas about what's true and what's right from God and from his word. And so here's your take-home truth. We must treat people with dignity from the womb to the grave and at every moment in between. Let's bow and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for instructing us in these commandments which are often just one sentence but then Lord you explicate in the rest of your word how they're to be carried out and what they mean and how they relate to other situations in life so Lord thank you for the Bible thank you for the scriptures our guidebook for life help us to be people of the book be people of the book who are not selectively people of the book but who take into account all that you say And to allow your word to dictate our agendas, not politicians or government officials or some political agenda. Lord, we ask you then to use us, as I prayed earlier, to be lights in darkness. For your sake we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.